Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Nitsan Pelman, Chief Executive Officer and Founder of Climb Higher. Today, we're talking about the value of networks and of leveraging social capital and how so often those who come from most marginalized backgrounds don't have the connections or indeed don't benefit from the introductions that can prove invaluable in the labor market and in developing a successful career. So we'll be exploring the programs that Climb Hire is running, the social capital mindset they're introducing, their innovative funding model, and the value of their alumni networks. So without further ado, Nitsan, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Well, good to see you. No time difference at all. We're both in the UK today, even though you're normally in the US, so in the West Coast, nonetheless. So thanks for making the trip all the way over here just for this <laughs> podcast. Flew out uh, just for the podcast. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. And you're the chief executive officer and the founder of Climb Higher, and would love to find out what it's all about. Well, uh, four years ago, I was an entrepreneur in residence at LinkedIn. And when I was there, I had become increasingly more interested in questions about how job seekers secure jobs. Um, I had spent much of my career working on trying to create a more equitable um, public education system in the U.S. Um, through some roots at Teach for America and um, some other well-known um, institutions in the U.S. And I just, I, I started to really wonder like, okay, after the people that we serve finish high school and go on to college, um, how do they ultimately get jobs? And maybe they don't go to college. I don't know. Um, and what LinkedIn did is they put a referral button on their platform. And what they learned by doing that was that the vast majority of job seekers were getting jobs through referrals. And it just was a really big epiphany for me um, in, in being forced to think about how did I find the majority of my jobs? Um, and I realized very quickly that almost every job I've ever gotten has come through a referral, a network, a warm relationship, an introduction. And as much as I distinctly want to be unique in the world, I realized how undistinct I was because this is how the world goes round. This is how the vast majority of middle income and affluent people get jobs. And they work really hard to purchase networks um, from a very young age as a result of that, because they understand and value networks. And it's why, you know, if you're living on one of the coasts, you know, parents are fighting to get their kids into fancy, fancy nursery schools, um, you know, kids that are only three, four or five years old. Um, and then kids are being encouraged to do very well academically so that they can go to Ivy League schools um, and once again build the next round of networks. And um, so I started to think about, well, where do networks come from? And oftentimes they do come from either the community that you grew up in if you're if you're living in a more well-to-do neighborhood. Um, and uh, college becomes another, entree place for networks. And, um, you know, if you're living in a dorm and you're singing in a cappella club and you're playing lacrosse and you're writing for the newspaper and 
you're um, in a fraternity or sorority, you just get to spend hundreds of hours with people in that coming of age moment in time. And those relationships really open up doors for the rest of your life. Um, And then I start to think about the people that I've been serving my whole life, people of color coming from low-income communities who oftentimes don't go to those schools, um, either because they're not affordable or even if they do, they oftentimes have to work um, for almost all of the hours that they're not sleeping or in class. And so they don't have the luxury of downtime to just kind of be with other people and to build organically those kinds of relationships that I think um, middle and affluent class um, people do uh, much more naturally. And so as a result of that, there is just a natural divide that that shakes out. And for people that are going to community college or or state schools where they haven't gotten to build those relationships and don't have robust social capital, uh, they start to apply for jobs and they oftentimes don't hear back um, from employers and then they move into retail um, positions, paying hourly wages, usually minimum wage. Oftentimes they just get stuck there. Um, And I had this hypothesis that there were all these people out there that were hidden and overlooked. And they were generally were people of color coming from low-income communities that have aptitude and grit and drive and motivation, but maybe not social capital to help them break into that first middle-class job, which usually leads to the second and the third and the fourth. Um, and I wanted to go find those people. I wanted to help them build networks and communities of professionals and also then help them build skills to get middle-class jobs. Um, and that's what we got to do starting about four years ago. Excellent, excellent. And so tell me, what, it, what does it look like in practice? So everything you're describing, including how people get jobs, because I have to say, even from personal experience, many jobs have been because someone knew someone who knew someone, and and then you have a good rapport, and you have the opportunity to establish a good rapport in the first instance, and that happens. Now, it's not always been the case, but it happens a lot. So I'm, I'm with you. I understand that. And I understand you have a lot of individuals who have incredible intellectual talent, abilities, who are overlooked, who don't have those life experiences and don't have those networks. How do you come in and try to address that? How do you, I don't know if leveling the playing field is, is the right phrase, but how do you come in and try to uh, achieve what you're described Um, Well, we've structured the program um, with many different uh, aspects of this. So first off, people who are earning below livable wage um, generally need to be working, and they're generally working during the day, um, although many work overnight too. But we run all of our programs for those in-demand skills um, in the evening. So it's six hours of class time a week, um, and it's twice a week, three hours each time. Um, Half of that time, they're building those in-demand skills. So we teach Salesforce administration. Um, We're about to launch a digital marketing cohort uh, and also one in in cybersecurity. We've taught project management in the past and financial services. Um, So we're constantly working with employers to identify what are the skills that are deeply in demand that need uh, a new pipeline of diverse and fantastic talent. So that's part one. And then half of the time they're doing that content. And the other half the time, 
we're teaching the art of relationship building. Um, so how do you ask questions? Um, how do you ask open-ended questions? How are you an active listener? How do you paraphrase? How do you use body language to signal that you're hearing and listening and understanding? Um, and then we give people many opportunities to practice. So first rounds of opportunities come from the cohort themselves, building relationships with people that look like you and come from your similar backgrounds. There's a lot of trust. There's a lot of connection that's already made with cohorts of people um, that you know come from similar spaces in life and deeply want to get to a different space. Um, we then have our alumni who have come from those same spaces. Maybe they were an Uber driver or a Lyft driver or uh, worked at Trader Joe's as a cashier or Target or Walmart. Um, and uh, then they've gone off and they've gotten a middle-class job and now they might work at IBM or at Workday, or Google, or Salesforce. And they come back and they help to train the next set of people. And we call these people that are near peers. They're not educators, but they're people that just went through a very similar experience themselves and have had a positive outcome and are now here to help the next set of people. And in that process, they have their own social capital um, or their own newfound social capital. Now they're working at a company and um, they have colleagues, they have uh, positions that open up on their team. And when that happens, they have the ability to refer somebody in, which is you know what we expect and hope will happen. Um, we then have five opportunities over the course of the cohort's experience where they get to interact with middle-class professionals and practice some of these same relationship building opportunities. So for instance, in that very first interview question uh, that's ubiquitous, tell me about yourself. Um, how you talk about yourself and your story and your skills and what you've accomplished and all that stuff. Uh, you don't you don't know how to do that. You don't do that immediately well. You have to iterate and get feedback and um, try again and and figure out what words make sense and what has the biggest bang for its buck and what uh, penetrates. Um, and so we do those events with middle-class professionals from all of these various companies like Google and Meta and, and LinkedIn and Salesforce, where professionals come and they practice. And in the process, they also build social capital um, with the climbers um, through the art of practicing. Uh, and all of those things together mean that you're building you know, somewhere between two and 10 relationships with current climbers in small pods another uh, three to four alumni relationships with people who have been through the program, and then generally another five to 10 relationships with professionals um, who hopefully you'll network with um, as you're on your journey to find a new uh, career. Mm. Is that what you call them? The, the climbers, the, the yes. folks who are excellent. I love it. <laughs> the climbers. And so you're providing some of that upskilling, some of that actual technical expertise that you're, you're, you're giving people. Um, you're leveraging the alumni networks, which I think are great. But from everything I hear is that that third bit that seems to perhaps set you out m mostly, which is the, um, the premise and the appreciation that you need these social skills and you need that ability to interact in a certain way and to appreciate the value of networks um, and not in a crass way, but in a tactful way. Um, and, and, and instilling that expertise in those climbers 
Is that really what you would say possibly sets you most apart from everything else? Yeah, I would say, um, I, I would think the best way to talk about it is really um, by talking about what was happening in this period when I was at LinkedIn, which is that people were really obsessed with like the coal miners in West Virginia or the truck drivers who were going to lose their jobs to autonomous vehicles. And everyone was like, you know, what, what are we going to do with all these workers whose jobs are disappearing either because of AI or robots or offshoring or, you know, other, other, other things, downsizing, um, digitizing. And how are we going to prepare all of these people for the 21st century and these fast changing skill sets that people need? And it seemed as if the answer was put them on LinkedIn learning, put them on Coursera, put them on Udemy, and they'll get some new certification in some in-demand skill. And voila, like they will be upskilled. And I just started to really think about that, especially after this LinkedIn data came out um, that talked about how profound the the um, aspect of networks and where, jo where job seekers were getting jobs. And I, I started to think like, okay, so the coal miner in West Virginia is going to get an AWS cloud practitioner certification, and then they're going to start applying for jobs cold. They're not going to have anybody vouching for them. They don't have any relevant experience. Who's going to look at this resume? Um, and how is an employer even going to find the resume? It's probably going to go straight to the garbage can from an from an applicant tracking system. And so it just seemed like without social capital, um, there didn't seem to be a way that people were going to really secure middle class jobs in mass. And um, I wanted to build a network of people who would help each other get jobs from the other, which is what happens in Ivy League networks every day. And so uh, we could do two things at one time, which is build those in-demand skills and build network and community at the same time that would help people break in. Um, and it seemed to me that most workforce organizations were almost exclusively focused on the skills, the in-demand skills, but not really the network and community piece of it. Mm -hmm. And the networking itself and that, um, I think that... Uh that richness that you you bring to somebody's life in terms of helping them appreciate the value of, of networks and how to go about that that presumably is not a secret sauce that you necessarily have to keep entirely to yourself right i mean i can see how if this is the way you want to benefit society and i can see why you would want to do this i would imagine you touched on community colleges for instance or uh, different academic settings that you would have in different countries, uh, because we don't have that in, in some countries. But I would imagine that um, you could help these other academic institutions to embrace the sort of approach that you're, you're, you're advocating here, right? Yes, I think so. There's no reason in the world why we should be the only ones helping people build social capital. What about, um, I don't know, in terms of the state of affairs with regards to the labor market and hiring, and obviously, in, be inclusive, uh, embracing diversity, key key topics of conversation today. I have been reading quite a bit about different, uh, some of even the blue chip professional services firms who are sort of putting a, redacting the name of the university you went to so that you're applying, but you don't 
you know, so you no longer say, oh, okay, well, that's a, that's a Cambridge alum. I'm a Cambridge alum. Okay, we can go for that. Um, it's sort of bringing in a little bit of objectivity. Yeah, um, I have seen quite a lot of efforts um, to redact universities, sometimes to redact names. Um, I have not seen a tremendous amount of impact from those things. Um, I think the biggest form of impact is when people have social capital and they know people from different communities and they and they try to make introductions. Like that's the most effective way um, for people to get jobs. And um, you know, we have a climber who uh, who grew up um, uh, with who was who's black and uh, identifies as a lesbian. And uh, her parents told her that there was. Um, only um, money for one of the two children to go to college. And she was not the kid that was going to go to college. And she was working in the Amazon warehouses at night. And, you know, I think just found it really exhausting and and physically taxing on her body. Um, And she came to our program um, and, and just did exceptionally well. And she met a volunteer who worked um, at another company and, um, he started to open up doors for her and network. Um, she ended up getting a great job um, in robotics um, on at Google um, and has done exceptionally well, well there. Um, and interestingly enough, you know, Google went through massive layoffs uh, a few months ago and she was part of a 14,000 person layoff. Um, her whole team was eliminated. Um, and, and that person reached out to me and said, I, I see that this person was eliminated. Uh, I'd like to share her resume at Cisco and other companies that I think would really find her interesting. And, you know, she made such an impression on him two years ago. And, you know, here he was wanting to help her, even though they haven't even had much contact. And that's kind of the power, actually, of the research that came after the initial platform um, around networks, which is who makes these kinds of introductions. So, you know, um, Alberto, you and I don't know each other super well. We've we've just met for uh, you know a short bit in this in this interview. But if somebody called you tomorrow and said, "Hey, you know, do you know this woman Nitsan?" Um, you would probably say something positive about me, even though we don't know. Probably, probably, well. probably. <laughs> I'm I'm being presumptuous and, and maybe assuming that, right? And and vice versa. If somebody called me about you, we don't know each other well. I would call us weak ties. Um, we're weakly tied. We we don't have years of experience of of, of spending time together and working together. And um, c- conventional wisdom might might tell us that only people who work who know each other well and are colleagues and work day in day out together they're the best referrers because they know each other's work so well. We call those people strong ties. But as it turns out, the LinkedIn data and um, uh, uh, other data um, that's been sh- shown for now uh, o- over a decade is that um, weak ties, people that don't know each other particularly well, are willing and happy to make referrals. And so you might only have one encounter with somebody or two. They're light. Um, and the, and that's what opens up doors for people even more than the strong ties. Yeah. Um, nothing you're saying there is is objectionable. I think that um, many people who are just you you know in passing are more than happy to help you if you ask them, right? 
And I think that that's one of the things I've noticed. I don't know if you've picked up on this as well, but uh, you know, sometimes I might be lecturing at, at, at a university course or something and people come, you know, students come up and they're like, well, how do I get into this space? How do I get into foundations or impact investing? And, and I just think there's a degree of maturity that you need to just be comfortable enough to write a, a brief email to somebody saying, look, I read your article. Would you be around for a brief chat, perhaps a Zoom coffee or something like that? And so many times you, you you bypass so many hurdles by just taking that very straightforward step that that conveys a little bit of confidence and maturity, but that so many young people just do not do not get. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think, yeah. Well, one thing to say about that, um, because we've been teaching this for a long time now, and I, I do think that if you've grown up in a world where this is currency around you, it's very natural and your head thinks that way. There isn't a day in my life that I don't think I'm saying, oh, can you connect me to blah, blah, blah. Like I, I do naturally every day, all day long. Um, as a CEO, <laughs> you need to be doing that. But um, but I think when I, sometimes we've heard our climbers say to us, like, I don't ask people for um, introductions. Like I'm not a charity case. Like I don't want to, you know, put myself on people and uh, we have to really help them with a mindset shift, which is that, no, like this is how white, to be honest, the white middle-class people get ahead every single day because they're asking each other for introductions. There's nothing wrong with it. And not only is there nothing wrong with it, but you actually look great. Like if you make an introduction to somebody else and that conversation goes well between the new person and and your colleague or your friend or whoever it is that you made the introduction to, then you, oftentimes you get a note back from the person saying, thank you so much for introducing me to this person. They were fantastic. I'm so glad I know them. And you look great for making that introduction. So we have to really help people feel comfortable with those things. And that's a, a chasm to cross. And by the way, it feels good. It feels good to introduce people, you know, <laughs> even if there's nothing vested, you know, no vested interest to do that at all. What about these climbers then? How do, so somebody listening to this or somebody um who would be interested in your program how do how does somebody apply are the courses in face to face through virtual give us a little bit of a flavor for the whole thing yeah um you would probably find us on various like social media channels tiktok instagram all the all the usual suspects um we sometimes have had opportunities to recruit people off of indeed which is um a job a job platform um and uh, when people um, apply, they really just need to be in their generally in their 20s or 30s. That's generally the population we serve. We're building community. So we're trying to have people that are in similar life stages to each other, usually mid-20s to late 30s. Like they've been working for a few years, potentially in those low-wage jobs. They're looking for something else. They're kind of ready, emotionally ready. Um, you know, professionally, they've kind of gotten a little stuck and they're and they're really feeling it. Um, and they're earning below livable wage. Um, so the criteria to be in the program is that you need to be earning less than forty thousand dollars. Um, generally, most of the people in the program are earning le- less than thirty thousand. Um, and then as long as you, you know, uh, go through our application process, which is not particularly arduous, but is really um, there to help us understand, can you read um, 
basic English? Can you write a basic sentence in English? Those are kind of like, you know, um, just the basics. Um, and uh, from there, if you, if you do those things uh, and you're earning below level wage, you will generally be accepted into the program. And uh, is it expensive or, to, I mean, what a... Ah, yes. Um, the program is free up front. We don't expect that people who are earning less than $30,000 are in a position to be able to pay. Um, but when they get a middle-class job that generally pays $45,000 or more, most people in our program get jobs that are paying $50,000 or more, um, then they're in a position to pay for the next person to have the same experience. So it's a pay-it-forward model. Um, they pay $150 a month for four years. So the cost is $7,200 for the program. Um, if for some reason they lose their job um, and they're not making $45,000 or more, at any moment they can pause their payments. Um, so it's really only for when people are in a position to be able to pay for the next person to have the same experience. Innovative model. And it's an outcomes-based model. So only when people get a positive outcome do they pay. And so it creates all of the right incentives for us um, and them um, to want um, a better life for themselves and to look for that job. Um, the average climber is generally earning at least 10000 usually between five dollars and $20,000 more than what they were earning when they came to the program. I just saw a text message this morning, somebody saying to me, uh, you know, uh, if, if I get this job, I'm in the final rounds, it will be 150% more than what I'm making today. Excellent. It's really exciting. And so when that happens, assuming that the average climber is getting about $10,000 more, they're paying about $1,200 a year when they have that $10,000 increase. So it's a pretty, we think it's a, an affordable um, and good deal for somebody um, to to be uh, in this kind of financial model. And the organization itself, in terms of besides the the sort of pay it forward, innovative uh, outcomes based funding model that you're you're described, but also people who are supportive of you, organizations, foundations. Tell us a little bit about who's made who's made Climb Higher possible besides you. <laughs> many, many people have made Climb Higher possible besides me. Um, we uh, have been very fortunate to get early support from uh, Eric Schmidt, um, the Schmidt Futures Foundation. Um, Eric was actually the, the first person to sort of review our model and really love the idea of social capital and near peers um, supporting one another. And he gave me a million dollars to start the organization. Um uh, the Schusterman Foundation out of Tulsa um, has been a, a wonderful supporter, um, and the Walmart.org um, folks have been incredible as well. Um, LinkedIn is a supporter, Workday, Strata, um, the Schultz Family Foundation in Seattle um, are all um, wonderful supporters as well. Excellent. And Google.org, big supporter. Big name. Big names overall. And um, and you, how did you end up where you are today? What's been that trajectory? I uh, have really been passionate for now almost 25 years about building um, equity in our society and building a more equitable world. Um, I started my career at Teach for America in New York um, when I was 22 years old, spending a lot of time in, in low-income communities, um, watching 
frankly, like the in, in, inequitable ways in which our public schools serve kids of color versus kids that are affluent in wildly different ways, the expectations that we have in, in different communities um, for for people that are in poverty um, are wildly different. Um, and I've always wanted to, I've always believed that education was the way to change the outcomes and to break the cycle of poverty. And as I've gotten older and spent more and more time being an entrepreneur, building different um, organizations, um, I've built three in the last 20 years. Um, I've just learned a lot about both the K-12 space, the higher education space, um, and I've just increasingly become much more interested in working on breaking the cycle of poverty through helping people get jobs as opposed to helping them go through long educational cycles. And part of that is because the education systems, at least in the U.S., have become really cost prohibitive. I'm sure that your listeners know that the cost of education in the U.S. is really, at this point, um, cost prohibitive and even really the middle class is struggling to figure out how to pay for college. And if college is increasingly becoming a sorting mechanism for wealth, then it seemed to me that we had to find other ways to give people skills that were fast, that are four or five, six months instead of years, that doesn't cost a lot of money, and that can get them into a different space um, much quicker and allow for that community to be built so that you could tap into it over and over and over again when you need it. Um, and you know, this is a good example with the tech layoffs in the Bay Area and in, in California right now. Um, we've seen, you know, quite a lot of people be impacted by that in our volunteer community and in our climber community. But now they have experience and they have social capital. And so they have former colleagues, they have people to tap into that can help them network and find the next opportunity. And so it really is about teaching people how to fish um, instead of you know, handing them a fish. Um, it's about building that infrastructure and that and that world that you can, you know, come back to over and over again. I'll, I'll say one more thing, which might be a little bit political, but um, when Trump was elected in the United States, um, I I was really sad, and um, I was sad not just because of his politics, but because I didn't like the way in which. He elevated himself. It almost seemed to me that the way that Trump succeeded was by stomping on other people. Um, and it was sort of to push people down in order to make himself be, be higher. Um, and I just didn't want to live in that world. I wanted to live in a world where people elevate each other and take pride and are happy when they do that. Um, and at the time, I was listening a lot to David Brooks who was, I think, equally depressed that Trump was being elected. And he was a, a back page um, opinion writer for the New York Times and a conservative writer um, and was looking for hope and looking for places to really um, look look for moments of, of things to shine on in the United States. And he would go into communities all across the United States. And what he would find was what he called weavers, people who were just you would go into these communities and they knew everybody and they were organizing the barbecues and they were organizing the soup kitchens and the charity drives and, you know, whatever it was, like they were at the heart, they were the heartbeat of communities. And um, he called them weavers. And I was really inspired by that. And I was like, I want to be a weaver. Like I want to help 
build community and help other people enjoy community and feel cared for and loved and valued. But I don't want to just be a weaver myself. I want to build a community of weavers, people who then do that for others. And that's why the alumni playing that role of near peer coach and near peer teachers and all of our alumni having the value system that we teach in our community from day one, that as soon as you get a job, your job is to get the next person a job and to refer them into a job is like, that's how we all elevate ourselves and elevate each other. And if you come here just to build skills by yourself, that's not what we're, that there's many places that you can build skills on your own on the internet. You don't need us. But what we're doing is we're building a community of people who want to celebrate each other when they experience and achieve success and motivate each other when we're feeling a little bit down and having a hard time and wanting to quit because everybody wants to quit at some point. Um, And then when people are in opportunities to pay it forward, both financially, but also through your social capital, that they're doing that for each other. And we've had 10 climbers in the last six months or so get hired through the referrals of other climbers um, and helping them secure jobs. And we've got many, many, many more climbers who have referred each other into opportunities and helped climbers get interviews and things like that, maybe that didn't turn into a job. But that's for us where we start to see the community is really cooking um, and really living into the value system that I think is one that we've, we're losing increasingly more and more in the U.S. And I hope that Climb Higher becomes a beacon on a hill in terms of helping people see the value and also the joy that comes from experiencing watching other people climb and other people succeed. On that point, on the joy, you must find it incredibly rewarding. I do. This is the most rewarding work I've ever gotten to do in my life. It's also the hardest work I've ever gotten to do in my life. It's hard. People uh, experience a lot of trauma. We are not kind in our society to our frontline workers. Um, We pay them wages that make them have to make horrible choices in their lives. Should I pay an electricity bill or should I eat? Um, Should I drive a car that isn't actually safe? Um, because I don't have any other form of transportation. Um, I'm, I, you know, there's violence. There's just a lot um, that makes um, the communities that we serve feel um, like they're 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 suffering. Um, and um, and to then watch the joy of people earn twenty, thirty thousand dollars more in that first role, sometimes ten, sometimes five. You know, it's different for everybody. And then to watch them get promoted, to watch them get a pay increase, to watch them get a salary increase. We have a climber who, uh, when I met him three years ago, he was um, doing landscaping and sometimes was unemployed and uh, told me that he was just embarrassed to tell anybody what he did professionally. Now he's managing um, two teams at his company and is making $90,000. And I just saw him a few weeks ago uh, at a at a Shabbat dinner that I host in my home uh, <laughs> at once uh, every two or three months. And um, he just was brimming with confidence and cheer. And um, I just, I don't know where one gets more joy than to see people find their own human potential, their own capacity, their own um their own their own self, their own self. Um how about that? It's, it's just amazing. What's the website address? Um, climb Higher is a double entendre. 
So it's climb and then space higher, H-I-R-E. So our website is www.climbhire.co. Okay, perfect. Before you before you leave us for this, uh, before you leave us today, what's that key takeaway you'd love to share with the audience? That this work is hard. It's not linear. It's not simple. It's not sprinkling fairy dust on people and then all of a sudden seeing amazing outcomes. Um, it's work. It's work. It's work to get a job. Sometimes I see climbers applying for hundreds of jobs um, before they get one. Um, and that can feel demoralizing and devastating to just keep putting yourself out there month after month, week after week. And sometimes it takes 12 months. Sometimes in an economic recession or, an, or a downturn, um, it could take longer. And the people who stay at it and who follow all of the, who who pull all of the levers, um, both by leaning into the social capital of our community, of the volunteers, of the alumni, applying cold, le leveraging their own social capital, thinking about tapping into our networks. We have a talent and player partnerships team that helps. There's so many different ways that people get jobs and the climbers who pull on all of those different strategies of which we teach all of them and we give people many opportunities to lean into all of them. They're the ones that succeed and the people that may get frustrated or flustered um, because it's just hard. Um, sometimes they may not see as much success and our job is to keep people motivated, to keep them believing in themselves, to help them prove to themselves that they have a lot more capacity than they think that they do. Um, but that is, you know, a, a hard, a tall order. It's not linear and it doesn't happen for everybody. Um, it can happen for a lot, a lot of people. Um, but I think for funders or, you know, others who are listening, sometimes people are looking for silver bullets. People are looking for like, oh, this works great. Like, let's do it. And let's just do it for millions of people. Um, the work is very complicated. And I think that for people that are really interested in this space, there's a lot of nuance in it. And I encourage people to fall in love with the problem um, and understand it in, its, in all of its complexities. Excellent. Well, Nitsan, thank you so very much for joining us today on the Do One Better podcast and for the passion that you're bringing to this work. And I wish you continued success, both for 2023 and beyond. And it's been an absolute pleasure hosting you on the show. So thanks for making the time. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Nitsan Pelman, Chief Executive Officer and Founder of Climb Higher. For information about this conversation and more than 200 other case studies and interviews with remarkable leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at lidji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Thoroughly enjoyed producing today's show for you, and I'll catch you on Monday.